0: You're listening to the Earthy Bee Podcast, where I talk to change leaders about circular economy products and services. I'm your host, Rebecca B. Kimber. I am talking to Justin Knapp from All Power Labs today. Uh, All Power Labs is a manufacturing company that creates energy out of biomass. Welcome, Justin.
1: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks so much for being here. I'm really excited to talk to you about uh, what your company does. And also, uh, I'm excited for you to explain uh, all kinds of different concepts to me uh, and our listeners, including uh, a little bit about what is biomass, what is biomass energy, and what is biochar. And um, I'm excited to talk to you about it. So you're going to give us a little bit of a rundown. Uh, we, we met at a conference And uh, you did such a nice job explaining all these concepts to me. So I wanted to have you on the podcast. And I'm excited to have you here to explain it to everybody. Sounds like a plan. Yeah. Great. All right. So if you could start by explaining basically what is biomass and what is biomass energy?
1: So biomass is probably what it sounds like, which is just material mass from biological sources that can be grasses or that can be dead plant vegetable matter it could be human or other animal waste dung but the common denominator of all biomass is that it came from some process of a living animal or plants usually and so as a as a byproduct or a co-product or the product of the the dead material biomass is what we take from that biological material and use for some productive purpose usually it's in, ter- in terms of converting into energy so when we think about biomass a lot of times we think about how we can take some waste product or corpse of a dead plant and turn it
0: into energy somehow wonderful and why is that important um do you consider yourself a renewable energy uh, company or how does how does this work
1: those are two the- good questions yeah so it's important because First of all, we have waste streams of various types that come from biological material. Food waste is a good example. You know, all of our food was living at some point, plants or animals or fungi. And when we eat parts of it, or even when we don't eat parts of it and it ends up as trash, then there's this biological waste stream. It's important to have an ecologically appropriate and fit way of disposing of that biomass waste stream for food. Also for products like uh, wood, you know, wood is used as a building material. And if we cut down a tree, we need to be responsible about how we use that. And there are bits and pieces of a tree that we can't always use for making chairs or making paper. So there's always going to be a waste stream when we're using wood. And the more that we can try to monetize and the more we can try to be ecologically appropriate with that waste stream, the better for business, the better for environment, the better for everyone. So that's why an appropriate use of biomass is valuable. Um, There are also others who do use biomass in ways that are not necessarily appropriate or ways that are destructive because biomass can grow things. Biomass can turn into methane. it It can be used in ways that end up actually polluting the environment. So it's really appropriate and important to have an ecologically innovative and green and sound way of dealing with biomass waste streams that are going to come up from all kinds of industries and whether or not it's considered renewable energy. It is actually, we think of renewable energy usually as something that's innovative or new. And we usually think of renewable energy in terms of solar, wind, hydro, sometimes maybe geothermal or fuel cells, but biomass is actually the oldest of all those biomass is like using wood in stoves you know, that releases the energy that's kept entrapped in wood right? that initially came from the sun, right? So the sun produces a uh, huge amount of energy, uh, a tiny fraction of it ends up coming to Earth, and a tiny fraction of that ends up being captured and used somehow by humans. And some of that is captured by plants. So plants, you could think of their bodies as a kind of battery for sunlight. They've trapped all this energy from the sun and we we expel that energy use that energy using things like fire. So biomass is actually extremely old as a technology for renewable energy. And it is renewable in as much as if I needed more gasoline or petroleum, diesel, if I needed any of those carbon, uh, those hydrocarbon sources from fossil fuels, I'd have to wait for millions of years. And I'd have to have just the right conditions where it's underground, it's high pressure and high temperature. But if I wanted a new tree, I, that could happen in my lifetime. you know. So biomass is renewable, even though it doesn't seem obvious that it is, maybe. It's not like the sun that comes up and goes down every day or wind power or wave power that's happening virtually continuously. But biomass is renewable on a human type of scale and has been used as a human source of energy for Thousands and thousands, and thousands of years.
0: Great. And can you explain so just a little bit more about there? I know that we talked about this before that there are that uh, there are sustainable ways to use biomass, and there are unsustainable ways to use biomass for energy. Is that correct? Sure.
1: Even if you imagine what I I just used an example of wood as uh, as a heat source. There are ways of cutting down trees and logging operations that are not sustainable because if you take down all these trees and you destroy all of this natural environment, it will take time for it to come back. And if you do that in a, in a way that's not sustainable, where you cut down a bunch of trees, don't replace them, and just keep on cutting down trees, that's going to be a real problem. You know that Again, that's yeah. an ecological and um, and an uh, economical problem. You know You can't sustain any kind of business by destroying the thing that your business is based on as you use it. And it's not ecologically appropriate because you're taking a natural environment that grew up around thousands or millions of years and radically altering it in a very short span, something's going to happen that's not appropriate or that you don't want. So that's a perfect example is even those of us who aren't necessarily clued into cutting edge technology about green energy or the environment, I think all of us would know that there are logging operations and ways of managing forests that aren't sustainable and aren't appropriate, and that's one of the ways that you could inappropriately use biomass as a non-renewable type of source by just destroying the biomass and not replacing it in any way.
0: Okay, got it. And then, can you explain a little bit about um, what All Power Labs does and how how you guys work and how you work with biomass
1: sure so my company specifically works with a subset of biomass which is woody biomass as i mentioned there can be other types of biomass could be dung could be food waste and scraps we specifically work with wood and other wood type products on a chemical basis what makes up wood and the way that wood functions is similar to some other types of material like nutshells for instance or the the pits of stone fruits Chemically, they're similar enough that we can do similar processes with them. So what Allpower Labs does is we have mobile gasifiers. Gasification is simply what it sounds like. Again, it's really just taking something that is not a gas and turning it into a gas. Again, okay. standard way to do that is using fire. You know, if you have a piece of wood and you set it on fire, releases a lot of energy. There's some light, some heat, and you'll also probably get some smoke or soot depending on how wet it is or what the conditions are. But mostly you're getting gas. This is the campfire smell that you smell when you have um, a piece of wood burning, right? Mm -hmm. So we work with woody biomass, like nutshells, wood chips, and we convert it into a gas. And when that gas is converted in our machinery, when we're producing electricity that goes into an internal combustion engine, just like in a car, and that runs a gen head and generates electricity. But also like with a stove or more conventional forms of using wood for energy, there's heat that's captured. So we can use that heat for productive things, uh, including cooling. It's possible to convert heat into air conditioning. And there's also a physical co-product. So this, this is one thing that differentiates this renewable energy technology from other renewable energy technologies like, say, a solar panel. If you have a solar panel, a solar panel accepts sunlight. And can either, you know, use PV or thermal. There are a couple different types of solar technologies. But essentially, it's taking sunlight and converting it into some kind of heat or electricity. And there are really no emissions. There's no other byproduct or co-product. But in our case, there is a physical co-product because you put stuff inside the machine. So some stuff has to come out somehow. And one of the co-products is biochar. And that was the thing that maybe we got first talking about when we met initially. Biochar Mm -hmm. is a physical co-product that comes off in the form of this uh, black carbon substance. So we have a few different ways of modeling our machine, and that's how we work. We have a couple different scales, kind of personal or small scale up to a commercial size scale. And we can modulate what the machine looks like to create several of those co-products I mentioned. You know, we can have heat, we can have cooling, electricity, biochar, and you can optimize for how much you want
0: one or the other okay so with that said can you explain well i guess i end up with two questions but i'll start with if you could just explain a little bit about what biochar is that's one of the things that you have said and then also if you could explain more about just um who would be using a product such as as yours you know is there it seems like this is more for a, a company that would have uh that has access to a lot of this this biomass Um, So maybe you could explain those two things.
1: Exactly, sure. So biochar, as I mentioned, was one of the co-products. If you imagine putting in wood in a campfire or in a stove, when you get out uh, the wood, out of the wood comes some kind of sooty or black material at the end, might have some ash in it. The reason why that happens is because wood has a pretty high carbon content and some of that carbon is combusted, turned into gases. It's eaten up in the process of fire. Fire is, a, is an oxidation process. So you take something that's not oxygen, combine it with oxygen, and then you end up with things like CO2. The C in CO2 is carbon, but then there's some carbon that doesn't get eaten up in that process or consumed in the process of uh, fire. And some of that's left behind. So again, you've probably seen this before, uh, creosote, soot, ash, uh, Mm -hmm. those have some minerals and some carbon. In our machinery, we do a pretty good job of kind of separating some of those gases, which include other materials in them, from the carbon. So what comes out is almost entirely carbon and some mineral content. That's biochar. So biochar is different from, but similar to a lot of other carbon products that Most of your listeners have seen or heard before. So, you know, you might have heard of or seen charcoal briquettes or carbon black or activated carbon, or even if you have like a water filter and maybe you have a water filter and you've noticed little black bits in it, or sometimes pills that will clean up water or clear up your stomach have charcoal in them. You know, the reason why there are a lot of charcoal products on the market now, like charcoal smoothies or charcoal in toothpaste or because carbon is really good at grafting to and bonding with things there's a huge huge subfield of chemistry that's organic chemistry and organic chemistry is essentially based on the fact that carbon is the basis of life organic material and also carbon can make all kinds of extremely complicated structures and carbon is just a very versatile element and makes a lot of um, pretty interesting different varied and useful products and is also very common in the world right so biochar is similar to some of those products that you might be familiar with it's mostly different in as much as it has an industry usage so the actual composition of it is carbon and some minerals Uh, that's also true of say a diamond a diamond is mostly made up of carbon might have some mineral impurities the difference is the conditions under which it was made Uh, diamonds are made under high pressure uh, high heat And the use case that it's used for. So a diamond, you know, could be used in some industrial cases, like for uh, the tips of saws that can cut things that are extremely um, difficult and hard materials, or it's used for jewelry. But biochar is mostly used as a soil amendment, and it's sometimes used as a filtration medium. So it's used as a soil amendment for agriculture, forestry. You put it in soil to have healthier plant growth and it's used sometimes for, soil, uh, for a filtration medium for cleaning up phosphorus or mercury and absorbing the nasty stuff out of, say, rainwater before it goes into a municipal water system, that sort of thing. There is a definition of biochar that's used by the International Biochar Initiative, and that definition is the solid material obtained from the thermochemical conversion of biomass in an oxygen-limited environment. So that's a more specific definition, but The definition that you could use commonly is just, was this carbon that was put in the ground or that was used for filtration? And that means it's probably biochar or activated carbon.
0: Okay. Yeah. And then with that, with biochar, one of my understanding is that the reason that this is important for the environment is because it can help sequester carbon. Is that correct? Is that how? Um, you know, how is biochar used?
1: Exactly. So again, if you imagine that example I gave of a campfire or a wood stove, the problem with burning a lot of materials is you end up with greenhouse gases, greenhouse gases. There are several of them, methane, CO2, or even other materials you don't necessarily want in the environment, like particulate matter. Particulate matter is not a gas, but it's very, very tiny particles. And that causes one of the biggest problems with wood smoke or with wildfires, is these very mm-hmm. tiny particles. <clears throat> if you have an environment where there's open burning of woody biomass or of other materials, you almost always get something going in the environment that you don't want. And so you want to contain that. One of the classic mm-hmm. examples is CO2. CO2 is a greenhouse gas. It causes, um, causes uh, increases of temperature. It causes um, a negative environmental impact on a large scale. So what you, want, what you don't want to do is just release it randomly or um, indiscriminately into the environment. Instead, when we use our machine that has this low oxygen environment, there's a process called pyrolysis. So when we're gasifying, there are several different stages. One of them is a fire-like stage called pyrolysis. It's splitting with fire. So there's some combustion that happens in our machine, but it's contained combustion. And it's also... Combustion in a low oxygen environment that helps create this very pure biochar. So it's not like the sooty, ashy stuff that's kind of filthy that comes out of a campfire. So when you take this carbon, you're directly sequestering it back into the ground. Some of the carbon is, again, eaten up in the process, it's recombined, there it turns into some gases. But some of the carbon is put to a productive use, which is direct drawdown. So you're taking carbon. That would have gone into the atmosphere somehow and you're putting it back in the soil now the reason this would have gone in the atmosphere is if you imagine a tree that's been felled let's say because of an environmental reason like the drought that happened in california over the past several years or because it was cut up by a logging operation through human intervention that tree is going to be turned into some product it's going to be burned uh it's going to be processed somehow or it's just going to lie there and rot so if you have a tree that goes up in a wildfire, there's a lot of material that goes up in the, into the atmosphere and a lot not a lot of that tree is used for anything productive. It's just destroyed. Or if a tree rots, that tree will probably turn into methane mostly, which is also really bad for the environment and is a, a more complicated chemical than CO2, uh, but also includes carbon. Not useful for the environment and not useful for human purposes. You know, trees rotting or trees being caught up in wildfire that doesn't help us at all. It's very destructive. Instead, when it goes through this useful process, some of that, some portion of that carbon is put directly back in the soil through this sequestration method, and stuff that would have gone in the atmosphere, where it does the most harm, is put in the soil, where it does the most good. That sequestration method is useful again, not just environmentally, but also useful for human purposes, where biochar as a soil amendment encourages plant growth. It retains water and nutrients in the soil and can help remediate soil that was in a bad state before or an unusable state. Like, for instance, brownfields that have been polluted in urban environments or over farmed farmland that has been um, depleted with its nutrients. So that's why biochar is really valuable as a direct carbon sequestration method. There are other sequestration methods. And sometimes maybe you'll read in the news how someone makes a crazy machine that can capture CO2 out of the air. Those are great technologies and they're very valuable. And one of the things we want to do is want to get carbon before it ever gets into the air in the first place and put carbon directly back in the ground.
0: Okay. Got it. So now so many questions came up for me here. Uh, one of them is, is this something that can be used in, uh, in for, uh, regenerative agriculture? Would regenerative agriculture be kind of linked with, uh, uh, with biochar and, and those kinds of things? Would Because when we're talking about the soil and, um, and sequestering carbon, is that related?
1: Very much so, yeah. So there are several processes and several things that constitute regenerative agriculture and fixing topsoil to increase biodiversity uh biochar definitely would fit into the kind of larger trend of permaculture and appropriate agriculture and regenerative agriculture if you take land which for whatever reason again because there's industrial spill or because was just farmed in a way that was not very appropriate or because maybe you put too much uh, too many nitrates in it while you were farming and you had too much polluting the soil biochar can definitely be part of a solution for remediating that soil and encouraging growth in that soil again turning that earth or that dirt into soil that's productive so that's definitely one application and one application that like a listener might be interested in you know a listener to this program may be interested in purchasing a mobile gasification generator or may have a woody biomass stream and in that case that person might want the machine that we make but for a lot of listeners, it's not really appropriate for me to buy a woody biomass gasification machine that generates electricity, but it would be appropriate for me to buy biochar, one of those those end products. If I had a rose garden or if I had a little backyard um, botanical garden, maybe I'm growing you know, uh, flowers, bushes, maybe I have property and I have a tree line I wanna grow a tree line on for privacy fence, you know, any of those really mundane common reasons from tomato plants to your prize azaleas, they would all benefit from biochar. And that goes up to a scale where you have, say, farmers, or you have large landowners who are trying to remediate on a large scale and they want to get plant growth in places where there wasn't growth before or hadn't been for several years. Then biochar is a totally appropriate, very helpful method of regenerative agriculture.
0: Okay, great. And so that's the thing. So you gave me a bag of uh, biochar when I met you. And uh, I still have my bag of biochar. I've still been trying to figure out, all right, where is this going in my garden? Um, but I know that you said that it, you combine that with compost and it actually helps the soil. Is that correct? And it helps the uh, the plants to grow to grow stronger. Is that correct?
1: That's exactly right. So the carbon, again, will absorb a lot of things, combine with a lot of things. And if you take carbon like this and just put it directly in soil then what it will do is it will soak up nutrients that exist in the soil so it'll actually rob plants of soil or of the nutrients in soil immediately there have been persons who use biochar in the past and that was their experience as they put the biochar directly in the ground and they didn't see it helping plants initially because what happens first is it's robbing and stealing all these nutrients out of soil that plants would have used once the biochar is kind of saturated with nutrients, things start growing like microbes and fungi. Things start growing on a small scale. There's a little exchange of electrons. There's exchange of nitrogen. You know, all kinds of things start happening on a very small scale. And that encourages the plant growth once that happens. So what we recommend is there's a good ratio and mix you probably want to have, and that can be tailored for different types of plants or different use cases, different soils. But Basically, you want to do like a 1 to 10 kind of ratio where you're mixing the biochar, one one uh, part or one unit of biochar, to about 10 units of compost. We've mostly worked with green waste type compost. Green waste compost is mostly made up of food scraps, maybe some yard clippings, that sort of thing. Sometimes you mix it between uh, browns and greens, the browns being like carbon-based products like wood, wood. Um, wood chips, shavings and sawdust and the greens being more vegetable plant matter, like food scraps. But either way, if you end up with biochar mixed with compost, that biochar will absorb those nutrients. It will help compost happen faster. You know, if someone out there is listening has made compost, making an appropriate compost takes time. And this cuts the time, the, the time by about a fifth or so, you know, maybe if you even had like a six week, bake time for your compost. It might be bound to about four weeks. And it increases the temperature. It encourages the correct type of growth inside of the compost. It has several positive effects just in compost. But that would be what you want to do. You'd want to take it with compost to saturate with nutrients, then put it in the soil. And that's when it's most productive for plant growth. Um, And again, I mentioned how we've mostly used the types of compost that are based on Food, scraps, that's what our experience has been. We've actually also worked with manure compost, and we've seen some positive results for manure compost as well. It seems like no matter what the source is of that that biomass that's degrading, either manure or food food waste that's decaying, whatever that biomass source is, it ends up saturating the biochar. And then it goes in the soil and that or even on top. It can even apply be applied topically. You can pour it onto a plant that's already Uh, been planted and it's already growing, and you'll see positive results.
0: Interesting. Okay. So then this all brings me into what it just, it seems like there's a huge potential for uh, both the biomass energy market and the bio and just biochar. Um, Is this, can you give me a little bit of a history, just a little bit of information about sort of what the past has looked like, you know, where is this, where, you know, where, where have, where has this been in the past? And then where is this going in the future? Will this be something that you think can be scaled up so that it, it becomes more mass market. I know that right now it's not some, most people that, you know, know that I know probably don't know what biochar or even biomass energy, what they are.
1: Yep. Those are good questions too. So again, bioenergy Uh, can take a few different forms. It's not just mobile gasification units like we make. There are other types of bioenergy, biodiesels. There are biogas digesters. There are a few other types of technology that can take formerly living material, convert it into energy somehow. Even with the narrow type of machinery that we make, these gasification units, there have been gasifiers that are around long before there were solar panels. Uh, In World War II, for instance, There were millions of cars on the road in europe and even some of the united states that ran on wood they essentially had stoves in the back of them and you know gasoline and petrol products were rationed pretty severely so folks still wanted to get from point a to point b and there were cars that ran on wood that was happening a long time before there were you know solar panels so there is a history of using biomass for energy there are a couple of problems one is there's a a kind of a problem of scale and of diverting waste streams to the place you want to get them. That's why we work on a small scale. In California, for instance, where we're located, there are huge, huge biomass plants that were founded in the 70s mostly. And there's centralized locations for processing biomass into energy. But the problem is you have to truck all that waste in. So you take waste from all different all over parts of the state, bring them to the Central Valley. And then you also have trucks leaving that are empty. So half of the miles that they're running are, are just getting back to where they were. They're not doing anything productive. Of course, it's very bad for the environment, very inefficient. Instead, what we like to do is you like to take the refinery to where the, the biomass is. You know, we have a smaller machine and it's co-located by a sawmill or a logging operation or or by a municipal waste dump or green waste recycling yard, right? So you kind of plug into where the waste stream already exists, and take parts of the waste stream that you can to convert into energy. That's one problem. Another problem is there are some co-products and there's some ways to do gasification that are dirtier or that have kind of filthy runoff. So there are some places in the world where there are biomass plants or biomass smaller biomass machines and they're not always as clean or ecologically appropriate. You know, there are some kind of hard chemical questions you have to answer about what happens with some of the co-products. Uh, another problem is there just isn't as much optics. Folks are just not as familiar with it as you pointed out. So a lot of folks know things like big, big dams. You know, like the Hoover Dam or Grand Coulee Dam. A lot of folks have seen uh, wind farms. You know, or maybe even have solar panels on their houses. They're just not as familiar with biomass energy. But in the in the space where folks are working with biomass, you know, they would be more clued into it or they'd be more knowledgeable about it. And there are other parts of the world where it's more common. Scandinavia and the Nordic countries, Germany, uh, India, you know, there are places in South and Southeast Asia where it's more common to have biomass. So there is some history to it and there is some geographic scope uh, for using bioenergy.
0: I'm just curious, why would that be? Why are these other countries, you know, if you're Scandinavia, countries like that, why are they more uh, using this technology?
1: So there are a couple reasons, you know, it's, it's coincidental. As a matter of fact, that our company was founded when there initially there was an artist space and the artists were making, making kind of industrial art or large scale art for things like burning man, you know, things where you go out in the middle of the desert and you have huge sculptures and you like take three cars and weld them together and turn it into a big sculpture or crazy stuff like that. So that requires a lot of energy and they had their power shut off by the city. So they needed to find a way to make the energy to run their blowtorches and, you know, whatever else, whatever crazy machines they were working with. And um, one of our founders of our company, Jim Mason, found an old Swedish manual from World War II that outlined these processes of gasification. So he built a little mobile gasifier unit. I think it was about five kilowatts, um, something like that. This little kit that was producing a decent amount of electricity, especially on a small scale, you know. One of the hard things about things like big dams or solar panels is that you need a lot of room to produce a whole lot of energy. It's not very energy dense. And that's not necessarily true with biomass. you can take biomass and biomass gasifiers and you can produce a lot of energy in a pretty small space. And then it kind of scaled up from there. Um, So he happened to find a Swedish manual. Uh, One of the reasons why biomass energy might be more popular in a place like in Scandinavia is place like norway for instance actually has very large oil reserves and huge oil deposits and for the most part they have tried to be ecologically appropriate and responsible with it and they try to not use um those those oil reserves in their own backyard they end up exporting a lot of it and that's also useful for them economically you know um, norway's been able to bank a whole lot of money from selling the oil but another thing that that norway has is a large large, large fields of trees. You know, if you go up into Arctic lands and places like in Alaska or Canada, there are oceans of trees. those are some of the few things that grow there. So you don't have very large amounts of animals. You don't have very large amounts of other types of plant growth, but you have some places in Arctic or Northern climates where there are a lot of trees, actually, you know, coniferous trees. So the trees are there. Persons have been using them for thousands of years for energy of some sort. So, there's just a history of using wood and converting it into heat. Uh, so, it just kind of makes sense in that respect. You know, there are some very fine companies in Germany and in Finland, like Volter or, you know, Spanner and Entrade, Trade, that mostly work on larger scales, but some of them work on smaller scales too. And then places like East and Southeast Asia and South Asia, there are some governments that are just much more aggressive and ambitious or who kind of have leapfrogged over some of the stages of industrialization that some Western countries have gone through. So you have places like Vietnam, for instance, where you have one generation of rice farmers who were pretty disconnected from the types of technologies that we might've experienced in the West. And then their children have top of the line iPhones. There was, there was a, there was this big gap where they jumped across, you know, a century of, kind of the sometimes ecologically inappropriate and sometimes very difficult technologies that you know here in western world we kind of went through with our uh, industrial revolution right so some places and that's really necessary ecologically too like huge huge markets like china and india they can't go through all the gross emissions and all the ecologically inappropriate things that a lot of western nations did because then it would hugely compound all the ecological problems that we have you know, so they have to. So they're very aggressive about it and they have to be aggressive. And also they can kind of stand on the shoulders of some of the insights that other places have had. And they can see some of the failures that have, that have happened in the West or even in, in the global South too. So some of them are just very aggressive. The Chinese, for instance, they're very aggressive about funding certain types of technologies and about being at the forefront of certain types of technologies. And if you were to look at the academic literature, there's a lot of it that comes out of China when it comes to biochar that's that's their government pouring tremendous amount of resources into studying things like biochar or bioenergy so there are a few historical reasons there are some political issues there are economic incentives um you know they all kind of conspire to certain parts of the world uh, being politically ambitious and having a political will or having a kind of natural disposition toward it where places like india again have tons and tons of forests you know that a lot of india is covered in jungles and then parts of it are covered in mountains and are virtually inaccessible you know india, india is a varied place china is a varied place so china has some parts of their country that are very lush and grow anything on on the face of the earth you can imagine and then they also have the gobi desert or you know where they have the tibetan plateau where it's very difficult to get anything to grow so there are there are a lot of factors that that play into certain places being more amenable to either bioenergy or to biochar as well that was the other half of your question there are some places that are just more aggressive about determining that they need to have very productive, very high value agriculture and they need to maximize every square inch that they've got to make the most out of uh, the agriculture that they've got.
0: Absolutely. And that makes sense. Um, And then I'm wondering where does, what does this mean for the future Um, Mm -hmm. with you guys?
1: Yes. So like you mentioned, there are pretty big places for both bioenergy and, for biochar to grow. If you imagine bioenergy, think of all of the places where there's animal or plant material, you know, even if you just focused on wood, like our company does think of all how much wood there is in the world, you know, and how much wood is used commonly in architecture.
0: And just to clarify, you don't mean wood that is being, you know, trees that are being cut down. You're referring more to, uh, trees that have fallen or wood that's like you said the chair you know if the chair is made then there's the, there's the scraps that come out of it right is that what you're referring to? exactly
1: yeah to be clear we don't advocate using our machines on wood that would have not otherwise been cut down or would have already been cleared as a part of appropriate forestry and it really wouldn't make yeah. sense economically like it would not make sense for someone to go down and cut up a bunch of trees just to throw in our machines. It makes sense to take an existing waste stream or to take, you know, divert part of an existing wood processing and use that in our machinery, but it wouldn't make sense. And it would not be appropriate for someone to go out and just chop down a bunch of trees. But even if you just imagined the existing wood waste streams uh, from agriculture, there's a huge um, wood waste stream from homes, If you think about things like demolishing homes, that's one of the biggest, uh, or other structures, that's one of the biggest pollutants in America, actually, is when when buildings get demolished or destroyed, there's a ton of waste that mostly doesn't go to anything productive. Or, God forbid, if you think of um, disaster relief, you know, when there are disasters like hurricanes and earthquakes, they destroy all kinds of buildings and there's a lot of wood in those buildings that needs to be put to some productive use.
0: You guys can do that. What about when there's, it, it makes me think about all the things that are on top of that wood, like the paint, uh, nails, you know, the, the all those different things. How does that yeah, work? There are a lot of, There think. are a lot of
1: treated woods that you couldn't use in our machinery. Mostly we've worked in the global South or, or if you will, the third world. And for the most part, mm-hmm. there aren't as many treated materials like that. And, you okay. know, Mostly we've worked in places like Liberia, Haiti, uh, Indonesia, and places where they have they're also um, more economically desperate and they're also more flexible. You know, they don't have as um, in some places where we've worked, we, there's no infrastructure at all. You know we've we've been responsible for some electrification processes where there's someone who's never seen a light bulb before in his life and the first time he's ever had power. Mm-hmm was from our machinery and so in places like that you know they they aren't tied to very conservative old ways of thinking when it comes to technology you're actually very open to it they just haven't had it for a variety of historical and political reasons but it's not like they have a certain way of doing things and they insist upon it they're very flexible what they're willing to do so even if you just try to think of that existing waste stream it's a mammoth market and it's a huge potential And similarly, if you think of how much agriculture there is or how much there are humans who are deliberately trying to grow um, plants, they could be, again, trees, it could be in forestry, it could be in agriculture. There's a mammoth market for how much stuff humans are trying to grow out of the ground and how much we're trying to remediate soil. So there there are huge potentials for those markets. They are still small. Um, Again, there are some complex reasons why those markets haven't grown, but... Yeah, they have huge, huge potential to grow. And I think they have huge environmental impact as well.
0: Absolutely. That makes sense. And when you said, you know, the other thing that you said that makes sense to me was the, uh, I think you mentioned uh, nutshells. Is that right? Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nutshells. That, that's something yeah. like just a waste from those kinds of things, because that's not, I mean, I, maybe you can enlighten me, but is that being used right now? I mean, what would nutshells be? used for. for sure
1: yeah we have we have partners we work with who are nutshell processors and they get pretty creative about how they use nutshells you know nutshells can be ground up and put in things like kitty litter for instance oh, or okay. sure or sometimes in some of the types of things i was talking about where charcoal appear like maybe even things like cosmetics uh sometimes uses an abrasive you know if you imagine a nutshell if you kind of ground it up it would be kind of abrasive and that could be something you could use to exfoliate your skin. So sure. it's it's pretty it's pretty impressive how creative some of our partners are with processing nutshells, but there are also plenty of nutshells that get put to no particularly good use. And even the nutshell partners that we have, you know, they process I don't even know how many tons, millions, millions of tons. Of nutshells, and they still have huge deposits of them, and there's still plenty of nutshells that aren't getting used for anything. Or every time you've ever, um, you know, eaten sliced peaches and peaches in cans, you know that peach had a pit; it had to go somewhere. And avocados have pits; they end up somewhere. A lot of times it's just the trash. Sometimes it's composting, which is valuable. Uh, sometimes it's used to grow another plant, another tree. But a lot of times it's just kind of discarded and wasted. So. Even if you caught a fraction of a fraction of a percent of all of those pits and all of those nutshells and all those wood chips,
0: that's a mammoth return in energy and in biochar. Absolutely. yeah, I mean, it's just amazing. I feel like this is the thing with circular economy and this whole space is just the potential for all of these new products and byproducts that and how things can be used that just has, it doesn't seem like it's been thought through. You know, just in modern life, it probably would have been a hundred years ago, but then we kind of went away from it and now we're starting to re- rethink it. Yeah, we have to be very efficient about how we use the
1: resources and a resource like a, wood, a piece of wood, a log, has a lot of things you can extract from it that are valuable and we have to be very creative and we have to be very appropriate with how we take that log, how we turn it into energy and water. That's another thing that we can use. We can extract water out of woody biomass. You know, all of those are very valuable. Those are things that humans at a large scale need and every human individually needs too. All of us need energy, all of us need water, all of us need heating or cooling, some kind of way to control, control our environments and all of us need food. So if we can take one piece of wood and have all of those co-products, then that creates new jobs. That creates new opportunities for ecologically appropriate activity. Um, yeah, there there is a huge scale at which both biochar and biomass to energy and waste energy can be used.
0: And we're seriously hoping that it does scale. Absolutely. That's awesome. Well, and I, we've been talking for a while now, it went by really fast, but um, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, so I just want to, you know, finish off by just asking, is there anything that that I haven't asked, is there anything that you um, really feel like listeners who are interested in circular economy and who are interested in, in uh, just just energy, bio, you know, biomass energy or even renewable energy, what they should know about uh, what you guys do and just about the industry in general? Sure. So what we do, again,
1: is we're the manufacturers of the machine. And so if everyone wants to know more about us, you can look us up, allpowerlabs.com. And, you know, we have a few social media profiles, too. Um, I think we're pretty accessible when it comes to folks visiting us. If you're in the Berkeley area, we have open houses. We go to events. Um, so you might see us kind of talking about what we do, like like you and I met at Verge. Yeah. So we're pretty accessible in that regard. And we have a decent profile in terms of the... We're, we're kind of a big fish in a small pond when it comes to biomass gasifiers and pyrolysis machines. It's kind of a niche environment, but because it's a niche environment, you know, if you get clued into that space, it's not long until you find out about who we are and what we do. So that's pretty easy for someone to find out about. Um, And wrapping your head around pyrolysis and gasification might take a little bit of time, but it's not terribly complicated, really, especially if you just know that it's a lot like fire, and fire produces energy. You know that, again, oldest renewable technology in the world and oldest renewable energy source the thing that we're also talking about or the thing that we're doing that's a little bit new is we're trying to create what we call local carbon networks and these would be kind of circular economies based around our technology that that have an effect of local drawdown so as i mentioned before you know we don't want to have one big plant where you bring all of your woody biomass and dump it off we want to have Thousands and thousands of tiny little plants and little refineries where the woody biomass is. But if you imagine a place like a sawmill, for instance, a sawmill will have a wood waste problem, and sawmills have very high electrical bills. But do sawmills, they usually don't grow things, they don't really need biochar, and they may need some water, maybe, but they may not. So if we have a machine that's also producing biochar and extracting water, Well, we don't want that to go to waste. We want to encourage someone to take it or to use it. So maybe that sawmill can partner with a composting company and that composting company can make a pre-blended compost that has biochar in it, for instance. Or maybe we have a nutshell producer who is using most of those co-products. You know, nutshell producers, they need to get rid of their waste and they need to use heat possibly. Uh, They need to use cooling possibly. And... Maybe they produce more electricity than they can use. So they, we want that electricity to go back into the grid. You know, Maybe they can use the biochar on hand, but maybe they can also sell some of it. Maybe they can take some of it, package it up, and sell it. And again, create a little local economy based on this machine that's kind of centralized as a hub of several co-products. So Local Carbon Network is kind of an initiative we have. Uh, you can learn more from our website, localcarbon.net. And that would be a place where maybe some of your listeners could really get clued in, where you wouldn't necessarily buy one of our gasification machines from all power labs, but you could see how you can fit into a, an existing local carbon network node at a place where you live or at a place where you can get one started.
0: Awesome. And, you know, you said two things that I just want to see if you could maybe clarify for the, uh, just for listeners. You Earlier, uh, you said direct drawdown, and then now you just said local drawdown. So I was wondering if you could just explain um, what you mean when you say drawdown. So drawdown is a term that's used
1: in climate science or in economics, where greenhouse gas in the atmosphere is lowered. So we have greenhouse gases that are already in the atmosphere, and a lot of the environmental movement and a lot of green technology has been aimed at not putting more stuff in the environment. And that's really good, right? So we want to cut the amount of stuff that we're putting into the environment. That, that's nasty. But that's not enough. We also need to take some of the existing stuff that's in the atmosphere and and remove it or reduce it somehow. So when we reduce those greenhouse gas concentrations, um, some of the technologies for doing that are things like those... Um, those drawdown machines i mentioned earlier in passing you know they can extract co2 directly from the atmosphere so drawdown is probably best known because of a book called drawdown and because of a a project called project drawdown which is climate change mitigation uh, project yeah yeah exactly so if you're familiar with that you know those are the places where you might have encountered drawdown And Drawdown as a concept has, that that book and that project Drawdown have a hundred methods for how individuals can encourage drawdown or can avoid all kinds of greenhouse gas emissions. And one of them is biochar. You know, um, that is a very valuable and possibly very scalable and possibly centuries long type of drawdown because the carbon that gets sequestered in biochar lasts for centuries or millennium. So this is a long-term strategy for how you can avoid emissions and how you can encourage healthier plant growth. Once plants are growing, plants will also clean the atmosphere. So that's why it's a drawdown solution. It's not just, oh, we're avoiding certain nasty stuff in the environment. We're also cleaning up the environment at the same time. You know, remediating soil, cleaning the air with plant growth, um, cleaning water by reducing runoff. So it's not just avoiding bad stuff. It's also positively doing good stuff. And it's local because it is something that's in a backyard. It's something that's distributed across several places. Again, centralized solutions are sometimes very important. Something like a hydro dam has to be centralized. It has to be very large. Or a geothermal plant. You can't just build a geothermal plant in everyone's backyard. You know, those are very specific as to what kind of uh, topology they can reside in, that sort of thing. But there's no reason why something like a solar panel can't be in everyone's backyard or a mobile gasification unit, you know, can be put many, many places and the the co-products like the biochar can be put in everyone's backyard. So okay. that's why it's a local solution. And that's also why it's a drawdown solution. It's not just avoiding the bad stuff, but it's positively doing the good stuff too.
0: Wonderful. And then, you know, just a real quick question. Sorry, I don't want to keep yeah. it too long, but... Um, could could what you could your uh, machine be part of a microgrid? I know that microgrids are something that's uh, being talked about a lot with renewable energy. So I'm just wondering if that's something that we're very good for.
1: For sure. So there are what are called distributed energy resources or DERs, and <clears throat> DERs are talked about sometimes in terms of replacing, but really I think it's more appropriate to talk about complementing or uh, adding sustainability to the utility grid so when you get your electricity a lot of times you get it from these large sources like i mentioned before like sometimes a dam or sometimes a really big plant that's burning coal and centralized locations for creating electricity are not going to go away they are valuable and they're needed to have these very large centralized processes it could be nuclear power it could be fossil fuels or it could be renewable power renewable power for biomass is still possible i mentioned some ways that it didn't work or some of the ways that it's maybe ecologically inappropriate there are, again other technologies like biogas digesters that could be centralized what have you but the electricity you get from the utility grid especially in places like california can be really unreliable or can be um it can be shut off or it can be disrupted by environmental events wildfires earthquakes and when that happens, you want to have some smaller distributed energy resources. Microgrids are one of those. Microgrids can be entirely islanded. They can be not connected to the utility grid at all. Or they could be connected to the utility grid through schemes like net energy metering or feed-in tariffs. And they can really supplement either in a local, in local sense, like you have a microgrid that's just totally self-contained. And so that community doesn't need to rely on the utility grid. Or it can be connected to the utility grid and then like powering and ensuring the stability of the utility grid. Biomass gasification is a totally appropriate solution. One of the things that biomass provides that's, that's not typical of things like wind or solar is its on-demand power. You can't tell the sun when to shine or you can't tell the wind when to blow. But you can tell our machines when you want it to start. And like i mentioned before there's also what's called productive power you know productive power is a kind of industry or a technical term and it refers to just how much it, it refers to how much kind of power you can get in one small area so if you wanted to power a blowtorch with um with solar panels you'd need like a football field covered in solar panels a, a blowtorch needs a lot of electricity in a very short period of time and produces a lot of high high uh, energy um output right and it also needs gases too for that matter it needs several things going into it but a blowtorch is not really something you could power with a wind farm unless you have a whole lot of them so you need you need on-demand solutions and you need high power high productive power solutions and if you pair those then you can get the best of both worlds you can get the kind of passive solar power just the sun's going by solar panels are sucking it up there's no human intervention and you can also have human intervention, and you can have these on-demand machines, and you can also power. Um, you can also pair those with batteries. Batteries are also really important for things like overnight, when you're probably not feeding biomass into a machine, and you probably also don't have the sun shining, but you still need some electricity. So, a biomass, solar, and battery grid, I think, is actually a very compelling combination for a microgrid. And it could be paired with other technologies, too. But those DERs or those microgrid technologies, I think, have a very important future.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for all of these great explanations. I really appreciate it. I know I've kept you for a while here, so I want to make sure that we wrap it up. But, um, yeah, everything will be in the – I'll have a a corresponding article uh, with with this episode. And I will include a link to all of the things that we talked about, like the local – network and, uh, drawdown of course. And, um, uh, and some of the other information that we talked about. So, and uh, of course, uh, the link to all power labs.
1: Yeah. It's super helpful. Um, yeah, so, I'm, I'm glad that I could be of service and I hope it wasn't too much for you or for your listeners. I hope it was valuable for everyone involved.
0: Thanks for listening. You can learn more about circular economy leaders and products on earthybee.com. While you're there, sign up for the newsletter to get a weekly update on the latest circular economy companies, products, and services.